Hi everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. Today we have Emerson Sparts of Sparts Media. And Emerson is actually um, fairly young, born in 1987, uh, New York Times best-selling author and CEO of Chicago-based Sparts Media, like I just said, uh, founder of OMG Facts, and also founded the Harry Potter site MuggleNet at age 12, also middle school dropout. So Emerson, how are we doing today? Doing good, man. Cool. Great. So, you know, thanks for being on the show. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your obviously very interesting background? Sure. So when I was 12, I convinced my parents to let me drop out of school and start homeschooling myself. So I had a super non-traditional self-education where I designed and developed my own curriculum. In the beginning, I just built stuff, built a lot of things, websites. One of them did very well, uh, a site called MuggleNet, which grew to become the number one Harry Potter website. To put that into a little bit of context, because people have very different ideas of what that means, uh, the site was doing about 50 million page views a month. I had to grow up really fast because I was managing a part-paid, part-volunteer team of about 120. And MuggleNet was a collection of different properties. So we had one of the biggest forums online, one of the biggest fan fiction sites, one of the biggest interactive RPGs. We published some books, one of which became a New York Times bestseller. So we used to go on tour and live like rock stars, and it was pretty wild. Uh, we also had the number one podcast in the world, not just for Harry Potter, but for all podcasts. Uh, and so I learned tons of that experience. I learned how to code, how to write, how to edit, how to lead, how to manage, how to design. And uh, as far as my curriculum, my parents pretty much stayed out of my way, but they let me study whatever I wanted. And one thing they did do, though, that was really smart was they had me read four short biographies of successful people every day. And this just shattered my little 12-year-old brain into about 10,000 pieces. And I started to think really big. And I remember having this epiphany when MuggleNet was doing really well and I was reading all these biographies. And I thought to myself, if I can do all this and I'm only 12, imagine what I can do when I'm 17. Of course, it felt like a very old age at the time. And I decided that I wanted to change the world. And I wanted to do it on a massive scale. So I began further immersing myself into the lives of people who had already changed the world. to see what patterns I could extract from their experiences. In doing this research, one conclusion I came to very quickly is that people who change the world tend to be extraordinarily influential before they change the world. So I realized that influence and impact were inextricably linked, and the more influence you had, the more impact you could create. So that set in motion for me a lifelong fascination with understanding influence. And there was one particular type of influence that really captured my imagination, which was virality. I thought, if you can make things go viral, that's like the closest that you can get to having a human superpower. You could tip elections, you could overthrow dictators, you could start movements, you could revolutionize entire industries. So fast forwarding a bit, I decided to go to college just for fun, which is a stupid reason to go to college. I got bored really fast, <laughs> really predictably, and I was going to drop out and start another business. But I had already had enough success with the first one that I wanted to go really big with the next one. I wanted to identify a model that would maximize my probability of getting to a billion by the time I was 30, just because it's a big number and it's a way to keep score. Uh, so I wanted to go as broad as possible. I wanted to be able to connect dots and see patterns between different disciplines and industries. So I set a goal of reading one nonfiction book every single day until graduation. Business, politics, psychology, economics, technology, science, uh, but with a, the heaviest focus being on the human mind, like neuroscience, cognitive psychology, behavioral science, etc. It wasn't just books, though. It was going through SEC filings, 10Ks, research, abstracts, textbooks. It was studying thousands of individual companies looking for patterns. Like, what do successful companies do differently than unsuccessful companies? It was studying industries, everything from natural gas wholesaling to drywall contracting. But it was actually a three-part process. So there was reading, reviewing, and rehearsing. Because it's not enough to just learn the information. You have to remember it, and you have to be able to apply it to get value out of it. 
So as far as being able to remember the information, I spent the first six months doing a really deep dive into the neuroscience of learning and memory. Because learning how to learn is literally the most important skill you can possibly develop. It's like the closest that we can get to wishing for more wishes. It provides an exponential return on the time that you invest in it. So I ended up building out a variety of different space repetition schedules where I would review everything that I wanted to remember on a schedule of a day later, a week later, a month later, and then every six months in perpetuity. So I have a very, very good memory for certain types of things, not because I have a photographic memory, just because I've reviewed it extensively and I can pull obscure facts out of my ass like you wouldn't believe. Um, a third part of the process was uh, rehearsal, the idea being you have to practice applying this information to be able to apply it in a situation where it's relevant. So think of like, get, how do you get your 10,000 hours to practice in? So I organized all the information into frameworks to contextualize it. So I'd have a persuasion framework, a negotiation framework, an innovation framework, etc. Take something like innovation. The way that I would practice innovation is I'd compile a series of acronyms that encapsulated every different type of business model. And then I'd go, from, I'd go to Walmart and I'd go from product to product to product on the shelves and I would take every product and apply every model to it to come up with new products. So when you're systematic about innovation like this, it becomes really easy to generate ideas. So take something like dry erase marker. Luxury, long tail, unused capacity, etc. Luxury, could I just sell a more expensive dry erase marker to sell status to people who have disposable income? Luxury, could I let people customize their own dry erase markers, etc. So using this, you know, I came up with thousands of billion dollar ideas and I got really interested in the notion of like which of these it has the highest probability of becoming a billion dollar business. And so I got really obsessed with this idea of probability of success. And so when I started studying virality, it was that combination of thoughts, vir uh, vir viral potential and probability success that led to my big aha moment, which was the kind of insight that if I was an academic, I would have started publishing papers on. But I'm not an academic. I'm an entrepreneur. So I just started doing it right away and seeing if I could make money off it. So I used Facebook as my first Petri dish, developed a series of algorithms designed to get Facebook pages to go viral, created dozens of pages that went from zero to millions of fans over a period of a few hours to a few days. And what I was basically doing was I was testing hundreds of different variables and seeing which variables correlated positively to virality. And then I just kept shortening the viral loop until I could tell within 20 seconds if a page was going to go viral. I was having a blast. These are all network level insights, like nodes, hubs, things like that. So I was able to take the same ideas from Facebook to Twitter, get millions of followers from Twitter, YouTube, Tumblr, websites, apps, worked on every platform, although some platforms are vastly more conducive than other platforms. Uh, in any event, Started the company about four and a half years ago, uh, not really intending it for, to be a company at all. It was just me using Facebook as this you know, sandbox of experimentation and then uh, you know, just started hiring people and then one day we were actually a company. Uh, now based in Chicago, we're about 45 people. Uh, I bootstrapped it for the first three years or so and then I've raised about 10 million since then. Uh, we, what we basically do is taken that body of that foundation of knowledge of virality and we've been expanding the types of products that we can create and viral challenges that we can solve. And now we've got a network of websites and apps that uh, generates, uh, we've got a, we're in the ballpark of 20 million monthly users right now. Okay. Uh, the more well-known ones would be like OMG Facts, which is the number one fact site. We've got uh, a website, the funny iPhone autocracks that went super viral a couple years ago, uh, a variety of meme sites. Our newest one, our fastest growing site ever, actually is a site called Dose. It's dose.com, D-O-S-E.com. And uh, it's, it's, you know, just putting out high quality content that has a high probability of going viral across a wide variety of different types of content types. Got it. So, so if, if you had to describe the ultimate mission of Sparse Media, I mean, what would it be? Cracking the code of virality. Okay. I that's like like this underlying theme of everything that we're doing is building out this technology infrastructure. We're a tech company that's masquerading as a media company right mm -hmm. now. Uh, like a ratio of developers to writers is absurdly imbalanced. 
And uh, the machine that you need to build to be able to create virality systematically is not a trivial undertaking. And there's not very many companies who've been able to accomplish, uh, who've made a lot of progress here. BuzzFeed being obviously the most notable uh, of companies that's been successful with that. Got it. Okay. So one thing that really sticks out to me, I mean, you're 12 years old and you're managing 120 people. I mean, even right now, you're age, you know, you're 20, 27 right now. And I mean, at age 12, you know, when you're managing 120 people, I mean, what's the reaction you're getting? I mean, how do you go about doing that? I kept my age a fiercely guarded secret for a long time because I thought that if they knew how young I was, that they wouldn't be interested in working for a kid. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I just decided that I... I I decided to come clean up at my age, and people weren't that surprised. Uh, they, they, I was younger than everyone expected, but they kind of suspected that I was young and just very mature for my age. Uh, but I, I just, I had to grow up really, really fast. Wow. Okay. I mean, you know, age twelve. I, I mean, I'm only a year older than you. At that time, I was playing freaking MMORPGs. I wasn't even, <laughs> didn't even know how to make build a website. Okay. Anyway, so a lot of free time. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in terms of. In terms of the, you know, reading four biographies a day, I mean, how did your, that, that part really sticks out to me too. And, and I think that's a parenting, that's a parenting tip. Maybe everyone on the show should, should, you know, probably take on at least once in their life. But how do you, how do they go about finding, you know, four biographies, four biographies for you to read each day? What's the process? So what, what happened was my dad, he just printed off thousands and thousands of pages of biographies. And so these were like magazine length biographies. Okay. Um, and then if I was interested in reading more, then I would read the, you know, a full length book, uh, autobiography or biography. Uh, but I got to choose whatever biographies I wanted to read. So in the beginning, I, I like literally only read athlete biographies cause I wanted to be the next Michael Jordan at the time, you know, <laughs> or the next Tiger Woods. I went, I went through a phase at some point in my life where I played every sport competitively mm-hmm. and you know, in, in, in his wisdom, he realized that the important thing was that I was reading those biographies and then eventually I moved on to other professions and other topics. And, and the value that you get from this, you could kind of spend, you know, you know, the, 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 one of my favorite quotes ever is that a man who reads lives a thousand lives, a man who doesn't lives only one. So by getting to like walk in the shoes of the most successful people of all time, you start to think more like them, you know, they kind of become your friends in some way and they influence you and, and your life choices. And, uh, and that was the, the primary value that I got out of that experience. Well, wow. no, that, that's incredible. I mean, because, you know, in, there's this group called Entrepreneurs Organization where, you know, pretty much you, you take from the experience of others. And th- that's what you're doing. You're taking you know, four, four, four biographies a day is just insane. I think I might make my kid read eight a day when, when I pop <laughs> one out. But uh, anyway, um, so, you know, obviously you've grown these different types of businesses. I mean, you know, let's go back to let's go back to um, the Harry Potter site, um, MuggleNet. So, you know, what's one big struggle you face while growing that business? There was a few struggles. First of all, I didn't even consider it to be a business. I didn't even want to make money off it. I just wanted to make the best Harry Potter website in the entire world. Uh-huh. Then I got a bill for two hundred dollars, and you know, even though I was never going to put ads on it because I, you know, the perfect Harry Potter website could not have ads on it, of course. Yeah. But two hundred dollars when you're that age may as well be like two billion dollars. Yeah. Like, okay, I'll put up one ad just long enough to pay the server bill. Yeah. And then the ad started making so much money that I was like, okay, I'll let it. You know, just one ad for one month. That's it. Yeah. Not going to end the site. Yeah. And ended up making about $6,000 off that one ad. And uh-huh. I swear, I've never felt so wealthy in my entire life as yeah. I did when I got that check. Yeah. Um, but biggest challenges were, uh, one was managing people. which was a huge pain in the ass. Like, it's hard. People, especially because most, you know, most, of the 120, most of them are volunteers. Mm-hmm. And volunteers, you get a very short shelf life. You get, so you get them for up to, at most, 
like four to six months. Mm -hmm. That means you're always hiring new people, always hiring new people. You're always training new people and you got to find ways of keeping them motivated and it's hard. Like, so I would do things like I would go and like post pictures of football stadiums full of people and I'd remind them, hey, this is how many people are seeing the work that you're doing every day so it doesn't feel lonely. Um, I had to deal with, you know, staff issues. Like I had one member of my team very early on uh, try to perform a mutiny on me and he failed because no one else backed him. Yeah. And, but he still had, he stole the website and it took me three weeks to get it back and the website was shut down for three weeks. Wow. And that was huge, huge, huge pain in the ass. It almost killed MuggleNet before it even really got going. Uh-huh. Uh, so many things. How did you deal with that, that struggle? I mean, your, your site's off for three weeks. You know, how do you deal, deal with a mutiny like that? Because people don't often, often talk about things like this, but you know, they do exist. Yeah. Um, so what happened was we, the rest of the staff was on my side. And we tried everything we could think of to persuade him to give the site back. And eventually, we just had to start digging into it. We dug into his background. And we found some really, really, really dark stuff. Uh-huh. And uh, that information uh, was what we needed to get the site back. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll just leave it at that then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So, you know, in terms, I mean, is, is MuggleNet the site that you got the 160 million page views per month? Is that the one? Or is that uh, OMG the, Facts? The network in total, 160 okay. months. Got it. Yeah. Okay, cool. So what are some, I guess, you know, you, you've built, we'll, we'll call these publishers. I mean, you know, what are some big things you learn while, while scaling these, these sites to, you know, massive, you know, amounts of page views? Uh, we'll learn tons of things. Uh, I'm not even sure where to start. Um, I mean, in general, when it comes to content, there's two, talking a little about virality for a second. So there's two different types of virality. There's incentivized virality. I like to call it bribery. There's bribery, mm-hmm. you know, where you, like, if you share this, I'll give you a coupon, I'll give you a discount, I'll give you a one for one, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then there's emotional virality, which is where people share it because they feel so much emotion of the right kind of emotion that they want to share it with their friend. If I had to summarize everything I've learned about virality into one key idea, it's that the more incentive you give people to share, the more likely they are to share. And again, you can incentivize them through helping create a lot of emotion or giving them something of value that incentivizes them to go tell their friends. So for most businesses, incentivized reality is way easier than emotional reality. Uh, and that's why I, I recommend you know, more like traditional word-of-mouth marketing programs and things like that are, for most businesses, going to be the most effective way to, to generate reality. Uh, the other kind of it, the emotional reality, you have to create a ton of emotion. Uh, things only go viral when they create a ton of emotion. Because think about it like this. You sit at your computer all day, click, 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 article, 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 picture, picture, photo, photo, video, video, and you almost never share. To get you to share, you know, you're sitting back in your chair. To get you to lean forward and say, I want to go tell everyone in my entire network on Facebook about this, it's got to really, really move you. Mm-hmm. And that means it has to be remarkable. And most content is boring. If your content doesn't go viral, it's because your content doesn't create enough emotion. Um, and there's some kinds of emotions that are better than other emotions. For example, um, anger is a very powerful viral emotion because it motivates you to act. Like, you know, I'm, I'm angry right now at this injustice in the world and the, my way of you know, helping to solve this problem is to share it with my friends. Bam, click. Uh, anger can obviously backfire for businesses, but it can also get people motivated. In general, though, I should say positive emotions work much better than negative emotions. Uh, humor, nostalgia, mm. uh, cute animals. These are things that create a lot of positive emotion, which you are likely to want to share. Um, ultimately, identity is at the core of most sharing. So if I share something, it's, ref- it's telling the world a little bit about me. And we want to put our image on, we want to put the best possible image of ourselves into the world. So this is the reason why nobody shares porn. <laughs> Also, this is why people share New Yorker articles extensively because New Yorker is, is the serious, you know, 
journalistic, well-represented institution, and uh, you seem really smart by sharing a New York article, yep. uh, even if you didn't read it. There's a really interesting study that showed that uh, only 25% of people who share a New York article actually read the article. Mm-hmm. Um, but your friend assumes that you read it if you shared it. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Current events, you know, a lot of emotion in the atmosphere, so if you can you know, ride on a current event of any kind, you're much more likely to get virality than if you don't. Uh, so these are just a, a few things that we keep in mind as we're thinking through the content creation process. But another thing that when it comes to like content creation in general, one school of thought that we've always adhered strongly to is this notion of it's really hard to create virality from scratch and there's a lot of content that already has proven viral potential and you're much better off uh, you're much better off, you know, emulating the success of things that are already proven to be viral rather than trying to, you know, go into a laboratory for ten years and come up with something that's perfect at the end of it. Got it. Okay. So, you know, you touched upon an interesting point. You know, it's really hard to manufacture virality, which is why there's, you know, there's those naysayers that say you can't just make things go viral, right? You know, what do you say to those people? Because I'm sure you've had to deal with them before. It's like, you know, I I know you're you're cracking the code for virality, but people are just like, you can't do it. You can't do it. So what's your response to them? Well, they're right and they're wrong, depending on how extreme they are and their assumptions of that. So it's very hard to do with one piece of content to be, to be able to say, yes, this content will go viral. Mm-hmm. What's easier to do is you can create a mach- you can create a system that, mac- that maximizes the probability of creating virality, and then you can still get a lot of things to go viral, even if you get a lot of duds. Mm-hmm. So our mantra is hit more home runs. So like a home run is something that goes super viral. So you've got the top of the pyramid, you've got hit more home runs is the goal. Mm-hmm. And then the two kind of sub-goals there are to increase your batting average mm-hmm. or get more at-bats. Mm-hmm. So that means that if you produce a thousand articles a day and you have a one percent chance for any one of them to go viral, you know, you can, getting a thousand at-bats a day is a lot different than getting a hundred at-bats a day or one at-bat a day. Most people just don't get enough at-bats. Mm-hmm. And then you increase your batting average by produce, increasing the quality of your content right. and the amount of emotion that you create with, regard, with respect to that content. Huh, I like that. You should, you should do like an ebook on that or something. I'd download it. Um, okay, so, you know, the, um, in, t- in terms of, I mean, you, you've had these other, you know, you, there's MuggleNet, there, there's Sparse Media, and I mean, there's all these different websites you've had. I mean, you know, could you tell me about a point in time where you were just completely on the brink of failure, like any one of your companies? I mean, I think every you know every company has been through a point where you're pulling money. I, I mean, every entrepreneur who's ever bootstrapped has been through a point where they're pulling money out of their IRAs and they're looking in couch cushions to make payroll and and you know things like that. And you know this company's no different. Um, you know, you, like I'm always been the kind of entrepreneur who puts every penny that I've ever earned right back into the company. So inevitably, when you do that, you don't have a big safety cushion for when things go wrong, and you just have to. And this is the reason why. The only people who make it as entrepreneurs are people who have enormous self-confidence mm-hmm. because you're going to go through those rocky periods where you're putting everything on the line and you have to believe in yourself so strongly that even if the odds are tilted against you, that it's still worth the risk. So you have to be like a, almost a degenerate risk seeker uh, because this, this game is just impossible to play otherwise. You have to be present to win. You have to keep staying in the game um, and you have to be slightly delusional because only people who are slightly delusional would be willing to take that kind of risk. Um, or people who don't care about money as much and you know, they're willing to just go all in on something that is inspiring to them even if you know, it, it can kill their personal finances. Um, so you know, I would say that in general, because we didn't really start off as a company, we haven't had as many of those as maybe some companies have. Uh, Uh-oh. Was that me? I don't know. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. I think it happens to all of us. Um, okay, so we left off. 
Yes, I was talking about um, struggle. So let me give you a couple of examples of specific rough periods. Okay. So we went through a period uh, a couple of years ago where we, we started growing. When you're dealing with reality, you have to be accustomed and willing to deal with extreme volatility in traffic. Mm-hmm. Because you know, one month you'll have something go nuts and you'll, your traffic will be through the roof and the next month it'll all come crashing down. Yep. I mean, so we went through a period where we had three – we used to be launching sites more regularly, like independent sites. And we had three sites in a row that were big hits. And our traffic just skyrocketed. We went from – uh, you know, one like I think probably seventy million to one hundred and forty million page views over a period of a couple months. Wow! And then you know we were riding three trends that kind of hit at the exact same time, and that traffic just evaporated in the the, the few months that followed it. And so I started hiring in the in having all this traffic, not totally assuming that the traffic would evaporate that quickly. But traffic went from like we were losing like twenty thirty million pages a month. Mm-hmm. It was rough. Wow. And when that kind of thing happens, like you got to really believe in yourself, and you got to really believe in that you're building something that is fundamentally strong on its foundation, so that you can deal with the turbulence of viral growth spikes. Wow. Okay. So yeah, I mean, you know, when you're losing thirty to forty million pages, I mean, did you have to deal with any layoffs or things like that, where you're pretty much pulling your hair out every day? Uh, no, but that is where you're most, that's the, that's the period of time when you start looking at couch cushions to, to make payroll to, because you assume that like, you know, we're good at this game. Like, well, you know, we're going to get back on our feet, you know, just don't overbuild in the periods when you're booming because you don't know when that can get take, you don't know when they can get ripped away from you and you're going to have to rebuild again from a smaller, you know, smaller high. I hear you on that. I know exactly how that feels. Um, like the best companies do is they built in, uh, I love Jim, um, Forgot the Jim Collins his metaphor of using oxygen canisters, where you assume that there's so many things that can go wrong that you build in, like if you're climbing Everest, uh, that you bring enough extra oxygen canisters with you because you have to plan for more contingencies, and and that's one thing I think that I've done well enough is that you know even if you know maybe during some periods we did grow a little too fast, we didn't bring ourselves below the death line where we ran out of oxygen and died. I think that's one thing that some entrepreneurs do intrinsically well. You know, there's like a risk. There's a perfect risk threshold in, in mm-hmm. which you're taking on as, as much risk as you can stomach to grow, but at the same time, not too much risk that you risk actually just dying. <clears throat> Got it. Okay, that makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, having you can call it a cushion, we can call it oxygen canisters, adding more runway. But you know, I think ultimately, same same concept, and it's really important for for entrepreneurs, especially watching, to understand that. Um, your, your backboard right there. Can you explain what's going on? I have no idea what's going on in this. this it's, <laughs> oh, I thought it was yours. That's that's, that's the tech team. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, something. Yeah, I thought it was some, something crazy you put together. Um, okay, so you know, what's what's one piece of advice you'd give to your not too far? You're 27. What's one piece of advice you'd give to your 25 year old self? I would have raised money earlier. I bootstrapped for longer than I should. I think I wasted like a year not having raised money, but not having enough cash to really be able to take full advantage of the opportunities that that were in front of us. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we kind of treaded water for a period of time that we didn't have to. That if I would have had the growth capital in earlier, we could have started growing faster. <clears throat> okay. And th- that actually brings up an interesting question. I mean, you know, when you're pitching, you know, the, the concept of cracking the code of virality to investors, I mean, there's got to be, it, it's, it's, it, it's got to be a little interesting to, to pitch, so to speak, uh, to, to put it lightly. I mean, you know, what, what did, did you experience any struggles when you had to pitch this, uh, this concept to investors? Yeah. I mean, it's something that, Everybody's interested in, but the wide degrees of understanding about what that means mm-hmm. made it such that I almost had to have different 
uh, I had to have different pitches depending on who I was pitching because mm-hmm. if I'm meeting with you know the you know Silicon Valley VCs who understand the space really well, then I can explain it almost as if I was explaining it to my team. Yep. But if I'm meeting with you know uh, a different investor who doesn't really understand the space that well, I've got to just find a completely different way of explaining it. Got it. Okay. Cool. And how much did Sparts end up raising? Uh, we raised about ten million so far. Got it. Okay. Cool. And that's. I mean, it's. I, I think. Uh, you know how. For for most people, I mean, you know, when you raise money, it's it's like rocket fuel. Can you say it's more like rocket fuel? I mean, how else has it has it helped you guys? Rocket fuel. I mean, the the biggest thing is just hiring. Like we've been able to hire more good people because of having that cash cushion. We've also been able to experiment more, uh, trying things with you know testing using Facebook and paid acquisition and things that we otherwise didn't have the cash available to be able to go and do. But the biggest thing has been hiring. Okay. Cool. Um, so, what's you know, what's one hiring tactic or one, you know process or trick or whatever you want to call it that you can share with the audience? Because you've been doing this since you were twelve years old. So, let me think. Hiring trick. Okay. So, one thing that has uh, worked out well in hiring so far has been I, I have a tendency to run for for certain types of product positions where. They need to be able to think very similar to I do because I'm a I'm a very heavy product focused CEO, so I, I've run I've run all these guys uh, through this gauntlet. They tend to come out like there's uh, they come out of school. They don't have a ton of experience. They're hungry. They're super smart, and I'll have them re- if they're interested in, in in working for us. This is known as being one of the best places to work if you're an aspiring growth hacker or a you know internet marketer, product person, etc. Uh, I'll have them read 20 books on the topics of you know, neuroscience, you know, behavioral science, uh, things of that nature, persuasion, mm-hmm. negotiation, things like that. Mm-hmm. I do that to see if they're a hustler. I do that because it's super valuable information that's just valuable for them to know, period, and that they'll be better at their jobs if I do hire them at the end of that. Okay. And how long does this gauntlet, I mean, how many days? Is there, is there like a deadline or anything? Uh, yes. I, I usually pick the deadline depending on how much time I think that person realistically has to be able to accomplish it. If they're fresh out of school and they have no other commitments, then it'll be a short deadline. You know, more like 25 days or so, maybe 30 days. But if they're already working a full-time job, I'll obviously be understanding of that fact. Okay. So if they're working a full-time job, give or take 60, 70 days? Yeah, maybe more like 45. 45. Yeah, yeah. yeah man. That's rough. It's a tough gauntlet right there. Do you? I mean, you know, we can talk about this after. So far, 100% hit rate that, that though. Anyone who goes through that gauntlet is uh, has, has been proven to be an effective hire. What's the, what's the retention rate on that? On the, uh, the team members? Yeah. So let's say they get through the gauntlet. You 100%. know, what? 100%. Wow. That see, that's a smoking gun right there. Um, do you mind sharing those those 20 books after? You know, I'll send you like an email, but I, I would love sure. to share that book with the audience. Um, you know, because we talk about hiring a lot. Um, all right, final two questions here. So, what's one productivity hack? And I know you have a, a ton of these. You know, what's run, one product? Productivity hack you can share with the audience. Hmm, okay, so something that would be useful. So I'm I'm a little crazy when it comes to productivity. Like I try to squeeze productivity out of like literally every second of every day. I turn everything into a game where I try to figure out if I can do any part of my routine one second faster, mm-hmm. a millisecond faster. Oh, I figured out a way to cross city streets five to eight percent faster by keeping a forty five degree angle between myself and my destination, mm-hmm. and that saves over the course of my life maybe three weeks of time. You know, little things like that. Um, as far, but that's not. Uh, so I've got a bunch of little ones like that that are good. As far as something that would probably be useful and hasn't been said a million times, as far as productivity hacking. Um, okay, well, I'm trying to think like what hasn't been said a million times already. Most of the best practices of productivity are actually really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the biggest thing that most people just totally suck at is this notion of locking yourself away when you have work that you have to get done. Mm-hmm. You have got to be completely ruthless about eliminating all distractions. 
when I was going through a book a day when I was in college, I would literally lock myself in the tiny, this tiny room in the basement of my dorm with no windows. I would face the wall, even though it was really quiet. Even people walking by was enough distraction. I'd put in headphones. I'd put white noise on. I would uh, ensure that the room window was blocked so nobody could see me and peek in and interrupt me in whatever I was doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's hard for me to tell how many little things like that are just horrendous for productivity. Most people say, oh, I'll just sit there at my desk and I'll try to get things done. No, no. You, have to do, you need to block out hours and you need to go to a separate room. You shut off your internet. You need to shut off any distraction. Put your phone. Don't, don't face the window. Uh, nothing. You have to cut out every distraction. Okay. Got it. That's super helpful. I, I think it's something I struggle with too. You know, I, I, you think you feel that, hey, you know, I'm just going to leave the, the computer on. I'm going to shut off push notifications, but it, it's really not enough. And I, I totally agree. And, you know, every, every second that your, your flow is disrupted, you know, everything gets thrown off track. So um, final question for you. What's one must read book you recommend to the audience? And you know, I, it's, I know it's hard to nail, you know, narrow it down to one, but what, if, you had, if you had to pick one, what would it be? For this audience, I would say it's Lean Analytics. Okay, cool. Who wrote that one, by the way? Uh, I don't remember the names. Okay, got it. But it's, it's part of the Lean series. Okay, got it. Perfect. So, you know, Emerson Sparts, everyone, um, you know, obviously a ton to learn from you. I need to have you on the show again sometime soon because I'm sure there's a lot of different hacks we can learn from you. Um, but, you know, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. Take care. All right, cool. Um, so I'm going to I'll email you and get your address. I'll ship you a shirt as well. Um, I forgot who put us in touch. Was it Chad from Disclicks? I think it was. I don't remember. Chad from who? Chad from Disclicks, the the guy from uh, When I Work, guy from Minnesota. Oh, Chad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I I forgot why he put us in touch, but he did. But anyway, we're here doing this. But um, anyway, um, I know you guys are doing some paid acquisition stuff. So I don't know if you guys messed around with YouTube ads yet, but we helped the startup grow like by seven million bucks using YouTube ads. So um, you know, something for you guys to look into. I'm sure you have a ton of good internet marketers on your team. Uh, we don't do much with YouTube right now, but it's in the back of my mind. And I would say we don't have a ton of exp- – oh, well, okay. So the extent of my experience with YouTube is that we built a YouTube channel called OMG Facts, which yeah. grew to – it grew to become a top – I think we were a top 100. Yeah. I forget. Either way, we went from like zero to 600,000 subscribers in about eight months, and we haven't done anything with it in several years. Um, and so I'm like super out of the loop on what's been happening for the past couple of years. Yeah. I mean, if you guys are, I mean, for direct response purposes, if you guys are selling anything or any type of su- subscription stuff, YouTube really kicks ass. Like all of our clients are like ROI positive on it. So I'm happy to like talk to whoever handles marketing and just say, Hey, you can do this, this and this, and you guys can just do it whenever you want. But there's a huge opportunity there. I'll keep that in mind. I appreciate right. that. Cool. Um, yeah. Let me know if you need anything else. I don't, I'm going to look into why Chad hooked us up, but, um, you know, other than that, I'll let you know when this goes live. All right. Sounds good, man. All right. Thanks, Emerson. Bye. Bye.